So let me read from Leviticus 9, beginning at verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burnt on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burnt them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And after, sorry, and he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offering for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burnt the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Let's pray. Our Father God, uh, we praise you that you come to your people, you appear to them. How you cause them to rejoice and fall down in worship. We pray now that as we hear you speak to us in your word, that you would enlighten our eyes, our hearts, unstop our ears, that we too might bow down and worship with joy, knowing that you are among us. Do this, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. Why did you come along this morning? What did you hope for? You got out of bed... You decided to come to church rather than do something else. Why? What was it? What were you expecting? What are you hoping for? It's, some of us we might just be in the past. That's just what we do on a Sunday morning. Uh, for others, we're, we know we're not Christians, but we're sort of interested. We're trying to work out what's going on. Well, great. If that's you, by the way, great. It's so good to have you with us. I hope you do feel at home. And slowly, things are sort of beginning to make sense. But let me, let me hone in on you. If you're a Christian, what, what do you hope for 
when you come on a Sunday morning. Uh, what I want to suggest to you, or what I think Leviticus 9 in particular is, is saying to us, and it goes with Leviticus 10, is there is one primary reason why we gather together, and that is to worship. You, we are built to worship God. In fact, it seems that we're even wired this way. I, I, I'm not going to get into details here because I'm way off my specialty. But there's a fascinating program about a year or so ago. Uh, it was on the BBC, but they were reporting research. And some researchers had worked out that if you scan people's brains, okay, and again, apologies to the scientists out there, but when you scan the brains and sort of watch which bits are firing and lighting up when people do different things, fascinatingly, the same bits that light up and fire and sort of zoom into action when Christians or religious people come to worship are the same bits that fire and zoom or whatever when, and the particular one they tested was when people who are really into sort of Apple gadgets okay, get their new products or go to a store opening. And these researchers who were not at all, I don't know whether they were Christian or Islamic or anything like that, just sort of studying brains, uh, wrote an, an article, wrote a paper on this, uh, talking about uh, how the fact that, that in many ways Apple has become a religion. Okay. We are built to be excited. We're built to, to, to want to sort of, I suppose, just, just be exuberant about something. And if it's not a God, it'll be something else. Even in our wiring, we're built for wonder, built for worship, that, that is. Now, Leviticus 9 doesn't tell us everything the Bible has to say about worship by any means. But it gives us an insight into well, both the God that we're meant to worship, we're, we're wired to worship. We, we can worship Apple and we can worship our family. We can worship all sorts of other things, but they're too small. Okay, we won't find satisfaction. There's something much bigger out there. And if we miss him, we'll end up scrabbling around being excited about iPhones and iPads and when there's something much more glorious on offer to us. Now, it's a complicated passage, and we're not going to dive into all the details. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, hopefully some of the sacrifices are beginning to make sense. We won't have time to dig into them all again. But let's just look at two big things. First of all, I want to look at the promise of this Old Testament worship. Okay, this is the big picture. Uh, the book of Leviticus is a famously difficult book. Lots of laws and complicated sacrifices and offerings and all the rest. But we saw that it began, or it followed on rather, right from the book of Exodus. The people of God had been rescued out of slavery uh, and they were brought to Mount Sinai. Or they met God there and they built this tabernacle, this tent. And then children, you might remember what happened to the tabernacle, the tent, right at the end of the book of Exodus. Does anyone remember what happened? They built it and then something came down and entered it. Yeah, abs. Brilliant, exactly. It was a huge sort of fiery cloud, which was basically God coming and entering. And when God entered, everyone else had to get out. Moses couldn't get in. So when the fire fell, everyone was driven out. No one could get in. And Leviticus has been dealing with the problem of, well, we've got this building, this tabernacle, this tent that God lives in, but we can't get in. So how are we going to get in and actually meet God? It's all very well having God sort of living next door, but if we can't actually meet him, there's not much use to us. And here, how does our passage end? Well, again, the fire comes. You see in verse 23 and verse 24, Moses go, and Aaron go into the tent and fire comes out, verse 24, and actually Moses and Aaron are allowed in. They're not driven out. For the first time, people can actually get into tabernacle, into God's presence, as it were, and they don't die. So what's changed? Why is it 
that in chapter 9, for the first time, people can get into the tabernacle, even if it's just Aaron and Moses for now. Well, what's changed is, is chapters 1 to 7. 1 to 8, I suppose, we've looked at. And if you remember, what they were about, well, 1 to 7 were about the sacrifices, you know, all the offerings. And chapter 8 was about the priests. So, so the way that people could now get into this tabernacle is through sacrifices and a priest. We'll look in detail at the sacrifices in a minute. But, but already, do you see the big picture of what, what this passage is telling us? If you want to come into God's presence, you can't just wander in on your own. Okay, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings films, um, kind of early, early doors, the Sean Bean character, the kind of grumpy Yorkshireman, whatever he's meant to be in the actual book. Um, they're, they're planning on going to Mordor, okay, the big country where the bad wizard lives. Again, I'm not an expert. Um, and they've got to get the ring in, haven't they? This big, scary, fiery country. And they're trying to plan how to do it. And Sean Bean just says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Okay, well, it's like that with God's presence. You can't just walk into God's presence. Okay, none of us have the right to go in. What we need is a sacrifice, something to die for us, to pay for our sin, to clean us. And actually someone to carry us in. That's what the priest does. So you'll see how they're pictures of Jesus, both of them. Jesus who dies for our sin, and Jesus in whom, who is our great high priest, as the New Testament calls us, Jesus who carries us into God's presence. We can't go in alone. We have to go in, as it were, sort of hiding under his robe. But, but why? Yeah, that's the point. Why did God provide a sacrifice and a priest? Well, it's because of verse 24. Okay, it was all going somewhere. He provided a sacrifice and a priest so that when we come into his presence, his presence is here symbolized by the fire, the people can fall down on their faces and worship. That's what they're doing there, that that word. It's a falling down and worship word. The purpose of all this is not simply so we can go in and and wave at God or look at him like an animal in the zoo. The point is that we can go in and worship God. And again, although this is the beginning of the Old Testament worship service, if you like, this is the, the church plant at Sinai, okay, the first service ever in the Old Testament. It pictures the New Testament, the New Covenant, the era we live in. Okay, just, it, it, the way the Old Testament often works is by sort of painting pictures. And if you look at the details, you, get a bit of, you step back and look at the whole thing, you suddenly say, ah, just a minute. I can see there the shape of what the New Testament tells me. The shadow of what's to come. Just look, for example, at when all this happens. Verse 1 of chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. On the eighth day. Okay, children, what's the eighth day of the week? That's right, it's saying you've got to go all the way around again, wouldn't you? It, it's the seven days a week, so the eighth day of the week is the first day of the next week, isn't it? So it depends where you start, so it's a bit of a silly question. Okay. But on the eighth day, either the first day of the new week, that's when Aaron appears. Now, if we, back in chapter 8, he'd been inside for a week. Okay, he, he disappeared for a week inside the tabernacle. On the eighth day, he reappeared and started leading the worship service of Israel, I on the first day of the week, the great high priest of Israel appears and starts leading his people in worship. Do you hear any bells? 
when does Jesus arise from the dead? On the third day, which is the Sunday in the Jewish way of count, third day from Friday, isn't it? So that's Sunday, which is the first day of the week, okay, the new week. Aaron is a little picture of Jesus. Jesus, who right again, he's hidden, he's in the ground. He appears on the first day of the week in order to begin the new covenant worship, the worship of the church. And what does he do? Well, he arises on that first day of the week. And just like in Leviticus 9, fire falls. Okay, There's a pattern, it spreads out over the book, into the book of Acts. But what does Jesus do? When Jesus goes up into heaven to be the kind of chief worshipper, leading his people in God's presence, what comes down? The Holy Spirit and fire fill the church. Remember the book of Acts chapter 1, Pentecost? The, people are, the disciples are gathered around and this, this sort of fire seems to come down from heaven and fill them. And we're told it's the Holy Spirit. Well, just as the fire filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the fire comes down and fills the New Testament tabernacle, the New Testament temple. That is the church. Okay, the tabernacle is a picture of the church. That's why Paul calls the church, that's us, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Appears on the first day of the new week. Fire comes down and fills us. And again, the first thing that people do in Acts 2, they gather together. There's a little church service in Acts 2. We're not going to look at it now. But they gather together. They uh, the apostles preach, they break bread, they pray together. And all this has been predicted, not just in Leviticus, but even in, think of Psalm 22. Do you remember this famous psalm about Jesus' death? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. As you read on, you might remember, we looked at it a few weeks ago. As you read on, you find out that it's not just a psalm about Jesus being crucified, although it is that. He talks about the, uh, the fact that he's pierced and, and that none of his bones are broken. It's a great prophecy of the cross. But in, in verse 22, it changes and becomes about the resurrection. So Psalm 22, verse 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. I'm going to be the worship leader. So Jesus, when I died, I will rise again and I will lead the congregation in praise of you. This is the the point of it all, the sacrifices, the priests. But the point is not just to get the people clean or forgiven. It's not even quite just to get us into God's presence. It's to make us into worshippers of God, to allow us to worship. Because worship is a huge privilege. It's not a sort of burden, oh, no, I've got to worship God. It's one of the things he demands of us, but it's the kind of quid pro quo of being saved. If I want forgiveness, I suppose I have to worship. Not at all. It's the blessing. You're forgiven so that you can worship. We're built for things much greater than us. And we we sort of know that, don't we? if If you go to... Perhaps you've got a holiday to one of these amazing sites, the pyramids or the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. Okay, when you go to these places, you're just awestruck, aren't you? And it's amazing. You look at something so much greater than you, just staggering beauty of nature, whatever it might be. And you're not focusing on yourself. It's, it's sort of worship almost. Well, how much more amazing to see, to come into the presence of the one who created all those things. That is what you're made for. If your life feels a bit dry and sort of shrilled and just boring and dull, could it be that it's because you've not yet seen and come to the God who you can worship? Now, that is why this whole system is in place. Not just the Old Testament pictures, but Jesus coming and dying and then pouring his spirit uh, on the church. And that is why we meet together ultimately on Sunday mornings. Uh, that is what we're doing today. 
Now, you might know, and, and there's a particular... We've, come from, we've all come from loads of different church backgrounds, I suspect. But the particular church background I, I have come from has for a long time, well, just for the last few years at least, really hit the drum hard, saying, well, just a minute, you shouldn't call Sunday mornings worship. Now, for some of you are thinking, that's just weird. Why, why? Okay, just bear with me a minute. Okay, let me speak to weirdos like myself who come from this tradition. Okay, so the, the, the reason is, they're not mad. Okay, the reason is this. You look at the New Testament and you see that in some places that the New Testament uses the word worship not to refer to what we're doing now, sort of singing and praying, and, but actually to all of our lives. I think of Romans 12. Uh, and verse uh, 1. Uh, Romans 12 uh, and verse 1. Let me read it to you. Uh, this is after he's, Paul's explained that the gospel to the Romans, and he's saying, how should you respond? And he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on to say how they should worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Love your brother. Honour your authorities. He's talking about all of life. He's saying all of life is worship. Now there's a confusion there because the, the word worship, the word translated worship there, can mean just sort of serve in a general sense, like you serve a king, you're in, employed by a master. Or it can mean this kind of focused sense of worship that we come and do on a Sunday morning. But it's certainly true that in that broad sense, all of our life is in God's service. We don't so think about him for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and then ignore him all the rest of the week. Of course not. But, but some people have taken that truth and I think just gone too far with it and said, therefore, there's nothing special about Sunday morning. But I don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. We haven't got time to sort of dig into engage that argument in its fullness at all. But, but, but the, the New Testament does use that worship word, I would suggest, to describe what goes on when Christians gather together. Okay, we won't look them up, but just listen to these verses from Acts. So Luke's speaking, and he says this, just a throwaway line. While we were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to us, and then on it goes. What was Luke and Paul doing when the Holy Spirit came and spoke to them? While we were worshipping. Was Luke just doing some doctor work? Paul making a tent? No, they were focused worshipping. They were worshipping and fasting. The worship word is used to describe what they're doing when they gather together as a church. Or Paul just casually, again, he's speaking to a governor. He's on trial. A guy called Felix is on trial. And he's explaining um, sort of his story. And he, he just says, I, I went up to, to Jerusalem to worship. He's happy calling what Christians come to, when they come together to meet, worship. Uh, lots and lots of other examples we could quote. Think of 1 Corinthians 14, a, Worship service is going on, uh, and somebody who's not a Christian comes in and he gets converted. And Paul says he will fall on his face, a bit like Leviticus, they fell on their faces. He'll fall on his face, worship God, and declare that God is really among you. Yes, all of life is worship, but there is something special about what we do on a Sunday. In fact, one of the other ways we know that is is that the Bible gives us a glimpse of what's going on in heaven now. The book of Revelation tells us not just what's going to happen in the future, where certainly we'll worship in that special sense, but also what's going on now, where the elders and the angels and all the saints who've gone before us bow down before the throne and worship and say how glorious you are. Honour, glory, dominion belong to you, O God. Now, why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because what we've seen before in the book of Leviticus and confirmed in the book of Hebrews, it's relevant because... The Bible says, actually, we are with them spiritually. By faith, we're already there. We've come to Mount Zion. Hebrews 12 tells us that when we meet 
We're already meeting with innumerable angels, the ones who've died and gone ahead of us, with Jesus himself. What are they doing? They are worshipping. Well, think of the Psalms. The Psalms which the New Testament commands us to sing. Okay, so the New Testament tells us to sing the Psalms, and time and time again in the Psalms, we're told to come and worship in this special, narrow sense. Psalm 29, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Is that talking about all of your life? You know, do your accountancy to the Lord in the beauty of holiness? No, of course not. It's a specific worship. The verse we began our service with, 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Where are you today? Okay, you're in a dance studio. Yes, but you're also on a holy mountain. You can't see it with your eyes, but by faith, Hebrews 12, that's where we are. So, Jesus took this role of high priest and sacrifice in order to bring us to worship him, to worship our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what we've come to do. I was away on holiday a couple of weeks ago, and I read a book um, written by, uh, it's actually an American uh, teacher at the theological college, and he'd had a sabbatical, a break, and he'd gone and just gone round loads of different churches. Uh, he went to about 50 churches. And afterwards, he, he, all evangelical, and he came back and said this. What, what, what I realise is so much of what we end up doing together on a Sunday morning is what he called edutainment. That's a made-up word, children, so don't write that in your school report. Edutainment, i.e. education or entertainment. That's what we gather together on a Sunday morning to do. That's what the ministers seem to be interested in. And if you're you know, like me, you're from a more conservative background, we're very good at bashing the entertainment. You know, isn't it, isn't it daft when these churches just put on smoke and mirrors and lights and sort of huge shows? It's like a Beyonce concert. And, you know, we're, as if the main point was to entertain people. Puppet shows here and dressing up as Moses there. Goodness knows what else. And we rightly say, that, you know, come on, that's not what the New Testament says. But then I wonder if we swing back into the education model, where the main purpose of meeting together is to learn stuff from the Bible. And there's a half-truth there, isn't there? We are meant to learn from the Bible. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Okay? But Christian, Christianity isn't anti-intellectual. There's a reason the sermon is our longest part, longest one item at least, in a service. But there is a danger there. There's a danger that actually education, having our minds transformed, becomes a kind of you know, university-educated person's version of entertainment. Okay, we're not actually into Beyonce and singing and jumping around and whatever. We wouldn't really like that anyway. But we do like being taught and learning and storing information. Okay, we like learning the main theme of 2 Peter. Uh, we like knowing how David and Goliath points to Jesus. We like knowing exactly what's gone wrong in Galatia or what the mistake of the Hebrews was. Now, all those things are good things to know. But how do I know if it's if my learning has become the sort of puffed up learning that Paul condemns rather than the right learning, the transforming of my mind? Well, I suggested it. it the answer is, the question is this. Is my learning leading to worship? Or is it just <coughs> leading to knowing more stuff so I can correct people in my midweek Bible study when they get it wrong or teach them and show how much I know? The point of learning is worship. The point of the sermon is not simply to take so many notes that I know everything about the Bible, but to encounter Christ so that I worship. We are meeting God as he's specially present and worshipping him. 
And God is specially present when we gather together. Of course, God is everywhere. Okay, you know that. You learn this as children, don't you? Where is God? God is everywhere. But he is specially present when the church gathers. That's what was obvious in the tabernacle. The fire fell. That was the sign of God's special presence. And that smoky, cloudy pillar dwelt in the tabernacle with them. Now, there's nothing visible here, is there? You know, as we begin the church service, the, I don't know, the table doesn't set on fire, or the cloud doesn't fill the building. There's nothing you can see. We live by faith, not by sight again. We worship by faith, not by sight. But he is specially present here. That there are ways right through the Bible that God promises he'll be particularly present in a sort of more intense way. I don't know how to describe it really, but a, a more special way than just the fact that he's everywhere. So in Exodus 20, when they, they met at Sinai, which is where Leviticus happens, really important verse, Exodus 20, God says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And here's the key bit. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. In every place I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Anywhere I say my name is going to be remembered, I will come to you and I'll bless you. God's presence and his blessing. Now, Moses didn't say to God, well, come on, God, you're everywhere. So what do you mean you'll come to us? Of course you're there anyway. So this is a special presence of God. And in the Old Testament, that altar they built at the foot of Sinai became the tabernacle, and on they went. There was a special sense. What about now? Where's the special places God comes? Two places he's promised to be specially present with us. First and primary is in his word, the Bible. Now, particularly when it's being preached to us. Just think of a passage like Romans 10. Paul's trying to explain, you know, how do people become Christians? They talk about we need to send, you know, send people, send missionaries, send preachers. Because uh, if they can't hear, if they never hear, how are they going to believe? And what he specifically says is how will they believe the one whom they've not heard? How will they believe the one whom they've not heard. Not of whom. He has to be put an of in there. It's just unhelpful. It's the one whom they have not heard. I.e., how are they going to hear Jesus unless they hear Jesus speaking to them? Jesus is in heaven. How is he going to speak to them? He speaks to them as the word is preached. Or think of the book of Ephesians. Where Paul says to the Ephesians, Christ came and preached to you. It's Ephesians 2. He came and preached to you. Jesus never went to Ephesus. How on earth did Jesus preach to the Ephesians? He preached through, well, the missionaries that were sent to Ephesus. So the primary way we meet God is when we gather on a Sunday morning, or the way he's specially present, and to bless us, we meet and the word is preached to us. That's why the sermons are not just lectures. However poor they are, okay, however bad a job I might do, or whoever's preaching might do, God comes to us in the word. And the second place is in what, it's not a Bible word this, but what the church has begun to call sacraments. Baptism and particularly the Lord's Supper for us. Think of the New Testament language about when we eat the bread, drink the wine, we participate in Christ. Okay? We have communion with him. So that's why these are the places you go to meet God in his special presence. That's why these are the big parts of the Sunday service. Children, okay, if you can meet anyone in the world, okay, anyone in the world, who would you like to meet? Okay, if you had literally anyone you like, yeah, go on, absolutely. God, I said to you know, 
Such a writer. Okay, and what about any human being in the world? Or in any book or in any film you've ever watched? Who would you most like to meet? Wonder Woman, okay? Wonder Woman, good one. Um, very wise, Dom's now pointing at his wife, very good. Um, now imagine, if I said to you Wonder Woman is going to be in the Trinity Centre in town at four o'clock on Wednesday, what would you do? Exactly. You would pester mum and dad, I want to be there. Four o'clock on Wednesday, I want to go meet Wonder Woman. Because she said she's going to be there at four o'clock in the Trinity Centre. Well, God has promised he'll be with us by his word, preach word, and the Lord's Supper. Week by week on his day, the Lord's day. So that's why we come, and we come expected to meet him. Not to be entertained primarily, not to be educated primarily, but to meet him. So, so if that was our mindset, how might that change how you approach Sunday mornings? Or even Saturday evenings in preparation. If we, we came by faith, conscious of the fact that God is specially present, it's not just a meeting, it's not even quite the same as Wednesday evening, when we meet for our Bible studies. How about if we came to Sunday mornings, conscious that God is specially present to bless us? How might that change what we do with our mobile phones? how we arrive, when we arrive, what attitude we arrive in. I know it's often chaos, particularly if you've got children. But come expecting to meet the Lord. And the good news is, it's not so much that we're here for him, but him for us. He comes to bless us. God doesn't say, any place I cause my name to be remembered, you better turn up and sing me some songs. He says, no, I will bless you. That's why it's so important to meet together, so that God can bless us. And that leads us just far more briefly as we, we close to the pattern of Old Covenant worship too. The pattern of Old Covenant worship. Remember these sacrifices we've looked at all the way through Leviticus are not just pictures of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, though they are that. They're also a picture of the ongoing relationship between God and his people. Remember, it's not that when Moses offers an offering, he's forgiven, and then he goes outside and he sins, and he thinks, I've got to run back in and offer another one, otherwise I'm I'm not going to heaven until I've done an offering. No. Just like our earlier reading, John, you are clean, but you need a wash every now and again to restore the relationship. Well, so too these sacrifices. And do you see the pattern of them in Leviticus 9? Aaron offers the sacrifices for himself. He's a sinner, so unlike Jesus, he has to offer sacrifices himself. And then for the people in the same order. Just look at the order and see if it rings any bells. First one. First of all, there's a call. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron, his sons, and the elders of Israel, the representatives of Israel together. It begins with Moses, the prophet. Moses, if you like, is a walking, talking Bible. He calls the people together. Verse 7 to 14 are the sacrifices of the priests. We're going to ignore those. And look at 15 to 21, the sacrifices of the people. Look at the order. Verse 15. It begins with the sin offering. That's what we call the, that was the D in our ABCD, the detergent offering. The one that purifies you, cleanses you. First up, cleansing from sin. Then verse 16, the burnt offering is next. That's the A, the ascension offering of Leviticus 1. The one that transformed the, the, the animal into holy smoke that ascended into God's presence. Okay, made the worshipper, the human, fit for God's presence, if you like. Uh, then verse 17, the grain offering. That's the response one, the bring a gift, the B. So A, well, it starts with D, then A, B, and then verse 18, the peace offering, the come and eat in peace offering. And then it all ends, verse 22, with Aaron lifting his hands and blessing them. Blessing, or to use the old word, the benediction. 
And Numbers tells us the words of that benediction, one of the words of that blessing that Aaron gives as he raises his arms. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Recognize it? That basic structure, call to worship from God's word. Then the dealing with sin, the forgiveness and cleansing. Then the, the sort of transforming of the worshippers, the sanctifying of them. Then the meal, and then finally the benediction. It's the same order of service, roughly, as ours. We call, the first words you hear in a worship service on a Sunday morning are from Scripture. It's God calling us to worship, Psalm 99.9 this morning. Then we confess our sins and renew our forgiveness. Then, if you like, the, the equivalent of the essential offering is that it's the word that comes to us. It, it cleanses, sanctifies us, transforms us slowly more and more so we're fit for God's presence. Then we come and eat at the Lord's table. And then finally, there's the benediction, the blessing. And you're hearing the same blessing pronounced on you as people were three and a half thousand years ago. And the benediction is not a prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. It's not a prayer. It's not talking to God. Please, Lord, would you please bless us and keep us? It's a pronouncement. It's an announcing. The Lord bless you and keep you. So I put my hands in the air because that's what everyone's done all the way through the Bible. Whether it's a priest or a patriarch, whoever it might be. It's a pronouncing, a preaching of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying this is a binding pattern. If you go to a church that doesn't have this pattern, it's completely wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But, but can you see the helpfulness of having that gospel structure to the worship? Our order of service, if you like, was written three and a half thousand years ago. And that means, let me give you just five super quick points about worship as we close. First of all, it's about what God does for us. We meet, first of all, for God to do stuff to us rather than us to bring gifts to God. He cleanses us. He sanctifies us, makes us holy by his word. He feeds us at his, at his table. He blesses us in the benediction. So come to be blessed. This is not a duty that you come along and you ought to go to church so you could do something for God to pay him back for forgiving you. And secondly, it's a, it's a dialogue, it's a conversation. Do you notice in the middle of all those offerings was the grain offering, the one that we give back, bring a gift offering. Well, worship is that sort of God blesses us and then we sing a song of thanks back to him. God sanctifies us and then we sing a song of praise back to him or pray our thanks back to him. And thirdly, worship is about the gospel. It's shaped by that gospel. God calls us, forgives us, slowly cleanses us, prepares us for the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a picture of the gospel. It's even a renewal of the covenant. Covenant is the Bible's word for the relationship with God. It's, it's a sort of renewal each week of that covenant relationship. So, for example, uh, in Exodus 24, we won't look, look at it now, but in Exodus 24, when they, they first go through this pattern, a sort of practice before the tabernacle thing starts, and Moses reads the word of the Lord, and the, Levit- the, the, the Israelites respond by saying, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they have this come and eat in peace offering. It's sort of like what we're doing now. The, the word of the Lord is being taught to you, it's preached to you. After what we're going to sing, we're then going to say a creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's not just so we can learn stuff about God. I've got to remember that God made heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. It's not just as a memory aid. It's us saying back to God, yeah, I believe. I trust in you. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like saying your time's tables to learn them. God has preached to us. We say, yes, God. Okay, it's, it's worship is about the, that gospel pattern of he speaks and we respond in faith. 
Repetition is good, fourthly. This, they never, Moses never changed the order. He never moved it about. Let's just spice it up a bit this week, lads. Okay. The, re, worship is, is meant to be repetitive. The Lord's Supper every week is bread and wine. And you hear the same words. But that's how Jesus commanded us to remember him. We're not free to improvise in that sense. It's a bit like marriage vows. You can't change your marriage vows. Okay. There's a reason why every wedding you've been to, at least in England, I know it's not the same university, but every wedding you've been to in England, the vows are for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, and sickness in health, till death to us part. You can't make up your own. Because your marriage, just to be sort of blunt hitting, your marriage is no different to anyone else's. Just occasionally I've had people come to me, not in Leeds, and say, can we write our own vows? And you really politely say, no, you can't. Because your, wedding, your marriage is not special. It's not that you're not special people or you're not special to one another, but you're entering the same institution as everybody else. And that hearing that repetition is right. Everyone else in the congregation who are at the wedding hears and remembers those vows. Repetition is a good thing. And finally, to see how the whole thing climaxes with a meal. Before the benediction, the, the blessing, Old Testament worship, just like new, climaxes with a meal. There are very few things in the New Testament that belong to, to the Lord, to Jesus. Very few things described as the Lord's. You get the odd sort of one like his feet or something like that. But basically you get this, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the Lord's cup, and the Lord's day. Table, supper, cup, day. That's why, if you like, towards the end of our worship service, we come to the Lord's table... We eat the Lord's Supper, the bread, we drink from the Lord's cup, and we do so on the Lord's day. It's not innovation, it's not just, I quite like doing it, and I'm the minister, so I get to make the calls. It is a pattern, a healthy pattern, woven into scripture and into, I've got to say, the church's tradition. And the whole point is that he will bless you. God has saved you to bless you. He is for you, so for you, that he was prepared for his own son to die for you. So for you, that he was prepared for his son to be crucified, that you might come into his presence and worship, enjoy him forever. That is your destiny. That's where everything's going. Our emotions go up and down all the time, don't they? We are a basket. We're a mess, all of us. We don't sing with joy all the time. We don't rejoice in the all the time. We are up and down and all over the shop, all of us in different degrees. But the future is the great wedding supper of the Lamb. That's where the Bible climaxes. Not even the great wedding sermon of the Lamb, but the great wedding supper of the Lamb. One day, faith will be transformed to sight. One day he will return. One day we'll be joined into a joyful congregation. It won't be 20, 30 of us sat in a hot room in Leeds, but billions of us gathered around the throne of the Lamb, and we will see Christ, and what will we do? We will worship. And then we will know true joy, fall on our faces, and rejoice.